This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fer Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Fer Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Got a, another great guest today. Our guest is a mobile home park owner and operator. He's out of New York State, but he's also uh, relocating down south. He's got some other ventures, other businesses, successful businessman. I've had the privilege of spending time in the field with him, something that I don't often get to do with uh, some of my colleagues, friends, clients. But in this case, got to spend some time in the field with Gerard. So please welcome to the show, Gerardo Sullivan. Gerard, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having me, man. How are you? Beautiful day in Kansas City. Hot mm-hmm. as heck, but uh, we're making it work. So, um, well, I know you, I obviously know you. We've spent some time together, but for the audience that may not, maybe tell us a little bit more about your background, what you've done in your career, and then also um, how you got into MHP and, and your, your views on that. Sure, sure. Well, thanks for having me. I um, uh, guess a little bit about myself. I've I've been involved with MHPs only for about two years, so relatively new to this particular space. Prior to that, um, I did some investing, both passively and actively in the multifamily space, which started only about five years ago, because um, early on I became um, involved in in owning my own businesses here in Long Island, New York, where I'm from. Uh, I own a couple of retail pet stores, so I've been involved in that space for close to 30 years. And, you know, starting that in my mid twenties, that took up, man, that took up so much of my time. Um, Getting into business when you're like 25 years old, you learn very quickly uh, what you don't know about being a business owner. (laughs) So um, I guess the biggest thing I didn't know was the amount of commitment, the amount of time and effort it would take to be a, uh, to be a business owner. And we started out with one location, um, seven days a week. It's a retail operation. So I had about 10, 12 employees and and being an employer, man, that, that is, that's a task unto itself. Um, and never having, you know, had an employee before you learn pretty quickly (laughs) what it takes to, to manage people's personalities and, and, uh, quirks and stuff. So um, you know, the business was successful and with that, we had to add more and more employees and just, you know, injected more and more, you know, stress and, and commitment to the business. Um, and after a few years, we grew into a larger location. We added a, we added a second location. So now we have two stores and probably about 30 employees, um, and, I, and I've kind of worked real hard at it. Uh, like I said, been in it for almost 30 years now. I did take on a business partner to, to help with the day-to-day operations. That, that, you know, that can burn you out real fast when you're in a seven-day-a-week operation and trying to manage 30 employees and, and you know, customer service and orders and, and just maintaining the facilities themselves. It's, it's, it's quite a bit. You know, I, was, I was wearing a lot of hats, wearing the HR hat, the, you know, managing every kind of 
my air conditioner broke, you know, my, my, someone ran, someone actually ran through the front of one of my stores with their car. So managing insurance claims and, and who's calling out sick this day and trying to juggle staff to just, just to keep the wheels on the bus. So, um, you know, it's been a grind, but, you know, very blessed. Um, looking back, I don't have any regrets. It's um, it's been a blessing because we've been successful. Quite honestly, we've been successful. Um, and and that is a great thing uh, because it allowed my wife to stay home and raise my family. I have three sons. Um, so so we were really fortunate in that regard. Um, and I guess kind of, you know, 20 years in, 25 years in, we did a little bit of stuff in the, in the um, real estate space. We had a couple of small multifamily homes, like a, like a two family home here and a, and a 10 unit home right here in Long Island, which my wife and I, we managed that self, we self-managed that for about four or five years, the 10 unit. And then um, I was so busy at work. So a lot of that responsibility fell on my wife, Darlene. And and she just got to the point where she couldn't take the phone calls anymore. She's like, I don't want to answer that phone anymore. You could, you talked me into this, uh, I, you know, the whole, my neighbor's too loud. This one's parking in my spot. My refrigerator broke my toy, you know, you know, the whole story. Right. Yeah. So, so she just got fed up one day and said, I don't want to do it anymore. So we eventually sold it. But what drove us into that was, one of you know, as you get older and, and you learn more about business, one of the biggest drivers in in our maturity was taxes. You know, we were successful in business, um, and that was great. But you learn quickly <laughs> that yes. you know you might be a solo a solo entrepreneur, but you have a partner in your business. And I say this to people all the time, and his name's Uncle Sam because yeah. and to say Uncle Sam is not a good partner. He taketh you know, more than he giveth. <laughs> he sure does. Right? Yeah. So. So taxes became kind of like my primary driver when I hit maybe like 20 years into the business. So that's about when we, you know, I started having some serious conversations with my CPA and I'm like, look, Jeff, you got to help me out here. You know, I'm given, I'm in New York state, right? So New York state has very high state income taxes as well as the federal income tax. And we were in the highest tax bracket. So now I'm given like 50% of my income to whether it be the feds or New York state. And I'm like, I'm just getting crushed here. And I'm sure you had a lot of employment taxes. That's another thing people forget about when you have employees. It's like you're paying the other 7.65% of FICO, Social Security, Medicaid. And it's like, and then you're doing the HR and the unemployment stuff and more work and less money. And you're like, I need to buy real estate. I need depreciation, right? <laughs> well, so the con- the conversation went similar to that. But the first thing my CPA did, because he's not really a real estate CPA, he said, well, let's set, you, let's set you and your staff up with a 401k. So we did that. And that enabled us to put a lot of money away. And we had to match, obviously, for our employees. And that was all a tax write-off. And, well, it's all well and good to give money to your employees and create goodwill with your employees and stuff. There's only so much of that at the end of the day that you really want to do as an employer. So I went back and I'm like, all right, so that helped. But what else can I do? So there was another sort of a pension plan. So we had a 401k, then we set up a pension plan. So now I'm putting a ton of money away for myself and my wife, as well as my employees. But I kind of got to the point where I'm like, it, this it really isn't working for me anymore. You know, it's helping, but I don't want to tie up all my investable funds in retirement money because you can't touch that till you're 59 and a half. And I'm still 15 years away from that. So I started just doing a little research on my own and, and, you know, I had already dabbled in 
in real estate with the multis and the 10 unit that I mentioned and stuff. So I started just, you know, looking at podcasts online and got drawn into the multifamily world and said to myself, okay, um, I'm going to look at, you know, look at real estate as a, as a tax strategy. And that was about five years ago, 2017, right around the time when President Trump passed his Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Right. And lo and behold, what did he introduce into that, you know, that act? Bonus, bonus depreciation. Thank you very much. Right. So bonus depreciation was all great. However, um, in order to truly take advantage of bonus depreciation, because it's considered a passive loss, we, my wife and I had to sit down and kind of figure out a strategy here. Um, so I could not qualify as a real estate professional because I had a full-time job running two retail stores seven days a week. So we, we got hooked up with a really intelligent guy that I met in the multifamily space. And he kind of laid it all out for me and said, listen, you need to basically fire your wife from her W-2 job at the pet stores. Yep. Um, at which point she got, she, well, she did, we did a few things. One, she got her real estate agent's license here in New York, which doesn't really make you a real estate professional because, you know, the complications of it, you have to be actively involved in the management of, of the real estate you own. But can, I, can, I, can I jump into, I want to highlight this because this is, this is super important stuff. And it's, it's very, very technical that you're, you have active income as a wage employee or you have active income in your pet store business, you can take depreciation, even bonus depreciation on real estate. If you invest in one of my mobile home parks, you're an investor, but you're not actively managing my mobile home park. I am. So you're a limited partner and you can only take depreciation losses from your limited real estate on other passive income, which is not your W-2 or your real estate business. So the key is to be deemed a real estate professional and, and thereby you're able to take passive losses or active losses, paper depreciation losses off of active income. So if your wife becomes a real estate professional and loses a million dollars in depreciation and you make a million dollars as a business owner, as a married filing jointly, you guys had a net income of zero. So that's, that's the, for, the, for our listeners, that's the basic framework here, but it's very technically uh, complicated as far as qualifying as a real estate professional. So you're, you're, you're right that your wife's going down a path as a realtor that helps, but it's not, it's not the whole thing. So I'll let you continue, but I want to, when you throw out technical term, real estate professional, I want to make sure the audience knows what that is because it's, you know, we're not giving tax advice here, but we're kind of giving tax brilliance here if they can follow the steps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would advise anybody who's in a situation where they're looking to use uh, depreciation losses in real estate to offset W2 K1 investment income um, really look into this. This is a really powerful strategy. Um, So 2017 that got implemented Unfortunately, 2022 is the last year where you can get 100% bonus depreciation because um, the the law of kind of it kind of sunsets now, but it's still powerful for the next few years because in 2023 it's 80% and then goes down to 60 and whatnot. So it's still a really strong strategy. Um, but like you said, for you know, you really need to look into the the um, the requirements to qualify as a real estate pro. <laughs> But if you can, if you can kind of check all those boxes and you'd have to keep a log of all your hours and, you know, if, if the IRS ever wants to do an audit or an examination, you need to show the log and you need to have some good backup, um, 
to show that you're actively involved in the management. Um, and, and that doesn't, you know, that, that's not necessarily an easy thing. You can't just say, uh, I went to a real estate seminar one weekend, or I, you know, I, I talked to my property manager. I've been advised that those things don't really qualify. Like you need to be like in the trenches, making decisions, talking to contractors, making arrangements to have worked on at your properties, your parks, wherever it may be. Um, visiting your parks on yeah. site. Yeah, that's all take great. Lots, take lots of pictures and videos of you looking down the sewer, you in the home. Yeah, I think the, the term I think you're looking for maybe is materially and actively participate. So it's, you know, it's in, in reality is, we can't have that many of us materially and actively participating on a single project. Now, what you can do is you can aggregate. When I first became a real estate professional, I didn't, you know, I had numerous LLCs and projects. Like you can aggregate those activities and say in the total, I'm a real estate professional. It's like I have a second job as a lawyer and I have a law firm. I have to monitor and I make sure that 51% of my time is as a real estate professional and 49 or less is as a lawyer. And I have, and I don't take a salary or W2 from law firm. I, you know, I own, own the law firm. I have other employees, but I'm a real estate professional who happens to have a side hustle is practicing law. The depreciation over here eliminates the taxable income over here. If I do it right. And I, and I do, I watch it like you, cause it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Every year, my income is zero. Mm-hmm. Now at some point, if you sell property, you have depreciation recapture which is 25% irrespective of your tax rate. And then you have long-term, hopefully long-term capital gain, which is 20%. If you're in a certain income threshold, 20 is the highest. And then there's a 3.8% Obamacare tax. But if you're a real estate professional, you get out of that too. So it's like, the, you know, not to get too political, but the Trump tax cuts help neuter the Obamacare taxes, <laughs> you know, win-win. And, and it's been a and it's been a really uh, great thing from from my wife and I. Um, we've utilized the strategy now for a couple of years and um, plan on continuing to you know to utilize the strategy because look, I mean I, I I learned a lot when I started reading about taxes and stuff. And there's some really good books out there. And and what I learned is that the tax code created by the IRS is there to incentivize citizens in the in this country to you know, to partake in certain industries, right? And one of the things they want investors like me and you doing is investing in real estate. Why? Because we're providing housing for American citizens. Right. Same thing with like gas and oil, right? They, they encourage investment in gas and oil because they don't want us being dependent on foreign energy. So it's, it's just kind of, it's just kind of the way to well, and, and they want you, and they want you to employ people. Right. So business owner, business owners, you get a lot of tax breaks as well. Cause you provide, I mean, I, I like you, I provide employment to several people, you know, and that, that, and then, and then what do they do with that money? Well, they, they buy stuff, you know, yep. widgets, tennis shoes, houses, cars, you know, candy canes, all, you know, all these things that further provide commerce. It's if I'll tell the listeners, I, I don't remember the exact name of the video, but at some point, in the past, Milton Friedman, who was a top economist in the you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, he gives a story about how to build a pencil. And he mm-hmm. talks about basically in globalization and all of the different people, products and countries it takes to build a pencil. And, you know, that same thing, if I hire someone, they spend their money, somebody at the rubber plant is making money. Somebody at the plastic plant is making money. Somebody at the gas station is making money. Somebody at the grocery store is making money. Some farmer is making money because my, because I've provided employment. So I think you're you're spot on, and that just shows your business acumen that 
taxes sometimes are the tail that's supposed to wag the dog because they can be really painful in who is it that says this? Maybe it's, I don't even remember, you know, you're, it's not, it's, you're supposed to pay uncle Sam what is owed, but you don't have an obligation to pay a penny more. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not, it's not moral to pay more taxes than you need to. (laughs) Don't cheat on, don't cheat on your taxes. But I had a, I had a, I had a law professor who taught me uh, federal taxation and he said, what's the difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion? Ten years in prison. <laughs> I was going to say twenty years. Yeah, yeah. So don't tax avoidance good, tax evasion bad. Not so good, right? Right, yeah. right, right. So I guess let me just take a step back. So uh, back when I, back in 2017, when I started saying to myself, I got to start investing in real estate. Uh, the first asset class that came, you know, up on my radar was multifamily. Sure. Um, so it was fine. You know, we we invested passively in about five or six deals mostly in the South, right? Whether it be Texas or Florida, Georgia, some, some good markets. Yeah, I learned kind of that you know, s- some sponsors are good and some are not so good. And you kind of have to trust your instincts and do really good diligence on your own. You can't, you can't just trust everything that's being fed to you by a sponsor and a, you know, in an offering package and stuff. So we've had some good experiences, some not so good experiences. Um, then we, then we invested in a couple of deals as uh, tenants in common where we were more actively involved, which was, which was better because I'm, as a business owner, I like being involved in decision-making. I like having access to the books and records. I like having the inside scoop. I don't like being a passive so much being on the outside and just kind of waiting for like monthly or quarterly update sort of thing. So that's beside the point. Um, after a couple of years of being in the multifamily space and getting some negative K-1s, I was like, oh, this is great. This is exactly what I'm looking for, right? I can now write off whether you know, a couple of hundred grand or whatnot, you know, depending on the size of the investment and the, and the, and the bonus depreciation. And if you want to talk about cost segregation, I'll let you go down that path. But um, I learned after being in the multifamily space that while the depreciation on multifamily assets is good, the depreciation on mobile home parks is even better. Absolutely. So that kind of opened my eyes. And now I'm saying to myself, Hmm, let me jump in. Let me jump in on that. You mentioned cost segregation. So yeah, cost, cost segregation is a study. You hire a CPA slash engineering firm to basically evaluate the components that you bought and you cannot depreciate land. Commercial buildings are depreciated in 39 years. Residential buildings are 27 and a half years. Other property, three, five, seven, 15 years. Anything 15 years or life that is real property can be bonus depreciated at 100% on day one. The value of mobile home parks is you got a lot of common area, parking, roads, signage, um, sometimes sometimes utility lines that are servicing tenant-owned homes. Those things have a higher percentage of the purchase price than, say, the building or, you know, in apartments, mostly the building and the land. So as a result, you, uh, you can depreciate a mobile home park, generally 30 to 75% of the purchase price, depending on the components at day one, whereas an apartment, it's probably 20 to 45%. So you get almost double the depreciation for the same hundred dollars or a million dollars spent. These studies cost anywhere from five to 10,000 
I've got an episode with Yona Weiss, uh, who's done a lot of our cost segregation studies at Madison Specs. So those guys are good, but there's lots of qualified players out there to do it. But um, yeah, to jump back in, cost seg is great. And um, it, it, it's, its utility will be less in the coming years because of the sunsetting timeline of the Trump tax cuts. Um, but they still it still has some utility for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned Yona and I've used Yona now uh, twice for the for the two um, the two years we've had plus eggs and he's great. And uh, I'm, I'm sure people who are watching this probably have heard of Yona. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. So so once we find once we found out the um, the efficiency of mobile home parks for the, um, you know, for the, for the bonus depreciation, it kind of opened my eyes to the asset class. And, you know, it's not easy breaking into a, a space, right? When you're, when you're a new investor, um, trying to get, you know, relationships with, with brokers, sellers, uh, just any industry professionals, everyone in the beginning is kind of like, who are you? Where are you from? What have you done? Um, why should I consider you to buy my mobile home park or my mobile home park portfolio or um, so that was a little bit of a challenge. It took a little while, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm a business person through and through, and I, I, I can talk about financials and financial statements and whatnot, but it took me a while to learn the space. Um, and like I said, I've only been in the mobile home park space now about two years. And, and we currently own three mobile home parks all in Kansas. Um, and, um, the first, the first purchase was a two park portfolio, uh, we bought from a fairly experienced uh, team of operators, and and it was it was a little bit tricky to kind of get him to uh, agree to sell us the parks. I guess he had had a couple of bad experiences where um, previous potential purchasers kind of backed out last minute, and he was kind of like, I don't know, I just got seller's fatigue. I think I might just kind of pull these parks off the market. And I was like, well, no, come on, let's have a conversation, you know, give me, give me a chance. I'm not like everybody else. And so we worked through those difficulties and he ended up selling us the parks. And, um, and you know, that first year is a big learning experience, right? You think, you think, you know, a lot of stuff, but you learn pretty quickly what you don't know. And so we've had, we've had some, some challenges, right. Where we've had some, you know, some bad tenants we had to get out learning the eviction process um, some issues with the town and some zoning things, trying to bring in some homes to fill some vacant lots, finding homes to fill vacant lots. That's been a real challenge. Um, but at the same point, um, that's the way you learn any business, right? I mean, there's nothing like experience, right? So you can read all the books, you can watch all the, the webinars and listen to podcasts till, you know, till the cows come home. But really, you got to just get in there and do it and learn it and and we're still learning, obviously. I mean, my pet business I'm in for 30 years, and I'm still learning things about that. So I certainly don't claim to know everything there is to know about mobile home parks in two years. But um, I like the space a lot. You know, it's it's not really terribly complicated. Uh, there are certain things that are that kind of jump up and <laughs> just kind of grab me because, like, man, I never saw that one coming. <laughs> but yeah. um, at the end of the day, it's not really too complicated. You're dealing with people. Um, you know, the residents I'm talking about now, and, and you have to kind of approach it with a real 
humanistic approach, I think like some, some we're talking about affordable housing here, right? And, and some people, they have problems. They, ha- they have difficulties. They might not be able to make their rent. They kind of give you a call and say, hey, can you help me out? So you can kind of approach that in one of two ways, like one, the real, the real hard way and say, no, I'm just running a business. I can't help you. And the other way is to kind of say, okay, well, what can I do to give you a hand? Can it, you know, can you, can we work out a payment plan? Can we, you know, can, can you pay me back over the next two or three months? You know, so there's just like little things like that. Um, what else? I mean, you know, there's just so many, there's just so many different things. And Tell me, tell me about your experience with your, your most recent purchase where you've got private utilities. That's something that a lot of people know. There's a, there's, a, there's obviously one of the more complicated things in the business, I think, is, is water, water and sewer. Most of the time, sewer is city sewer, so it's not as complicated. Water, if you're submetering, it's complicated from a regulatory standpoint, from a billing standpoint, getting the team to transition, getting customers used to paying for something that was free. Um, in, in, in your most recent purchase, you had a lagoon and a treatment plant. So there's a, there's a professional operator that's obviously crucial to that from a testing perspective, but has that been a learning curve or is it kind of the system that was in place already has kind of been, been rolling with the punches? Yeah. So obviously, you know, this park well, because this is when we spent some time together. Um, yeah. So, so far we've been really fortunate that we haven't had any kind of issues with it, but as we got on site that day to kind of look at this, uh, um, we, I think we learned a lot. I, one of your former guests, Phil Merrill, joined us that day. Yep. And, uh, Phil was great to have on site to talk about the lagoon and the treatment plant. But basically, this park started off with just a lagoon. Um, and, you know, by all rights, everybody says lagoons. Don't, don't buy a park with lagoons, right? They, they kind of try to scare you away from it. Um, but then at some point, the, the previous owners, they installed a treatment plant in front of the lagoon, right? So the water basically goes down the sewer lines through the treatment plant, out the other end of the treatment plant into the lagoon, and then out the back of the lagoon into the creek where the water just kind of discharges. And what we learned is that the, you know, we're in Kansas now, so the state of Kansas has regulatory agencies and we have to uh, have an operator in there on a weekly basis basically taking water samples, sending those water samples off to the state for, um, you know, for readings. And they, you know, they watch those readings very carefully. I think some of the things that we learned that day that they look out for things like nitrites, ammonia, phosphorus levels. (laughs) And um, so far we've been lucky uh, that we haven't had any issues, but we've only owned this particular park for about six months. Um, but you know, on a, on an ongoing basis, we're paying, we're paying the operator about a thousand bucks a month to kind of do his thing, um, every month without fail. And then we're also paying another, I want to say two to 300 bucks a month just for the testing. The water testing goes off to a lab. So with, you know, with treatment plants and, and this sort of a setup with lagoon, it's costing about, uh, you know, 12, 1300 bucks a month. Um, just for the treatment of the, you know, of the wastewater. And then, uh, you know, obviously there's some additional electric expense, you know, to run the treatment plant. Um, But we did learn a lot, you know, on site. We learned that these things typically have a useful life of about 30 years. Uh, This particular treatment plant's been there for about 10. So, you know, it wasn't in bad shape, but it certainly has some wear and tear on it. Something we're going to have to pay a lot of attention to in the coming years. 
Um, some components of the plant, uh, like the fans and some of the motors and stuff might need some, some maintenance, but that hasn't been a real problem. Um, so far we are blessed that we're, we're doing pretty good with it. Um, another issue with that particular park was when we got on site, we noticed one of the things that we didn't see from, you know, from the marketing materials were the roads, the roads at that particular park were <laughs> really rough shape. Right. Um, and I haven't done anything with them yet just because the winter's, you know, been ongoing and whatnot. Not to mention that, you know, I've gotten some bids to work on the roads and just with the price of everything right now, the cost of asphalt is through the roof and, and right. shortages and everything else like we're dealing with in this country with, you know, supply chain issues and stuff. I'm kind of thinking right now, do I just try to get through the next few months to see where, prices kind of shake out, right? Inflation's crazy. Um, it's affecting every part of everything we all do each and every day of our lives. I don't want to be going in there fixing roads at the point where it's at like the top of the, the price cycle, right? So I might just try to get through the next six months or so and, and just see how, how things go. But that, you know, those roads in that park, we got bids anywhere from like 400K to 700K to completely, you know, grind up the roads that were there and just put down a new asphalt uh, set of roads. Um, and it's 103 uh, pad park. So it's a, it's a good size park. Um, not, not a monster, but certainly not a little park by any, by any stretch. So um, that's something we're going to be tackling in the next couple of months. But um, yeah, same, same business plan with that park. Just try to bring in some homes. We walked the park that day. You and I looked at all the vacant lots um, you were giving me some good feedback on the type of the type of homes that could go on each particular lot. So that was that was helpful. And we're now talking with a few factories in Kansas now as far as um, bringing in some brand new homes, because it's been almost impossible to find used homes. It's a tough market, definitely a tough market for used homes. I mean, it's a tough market for new homes, too. I mean, new homes, the prices have gone up so much. It's I've got a couple parts where I'm like, I'm going to lose 15,000 a pop to sell those. And it's like, obviously you get the, excuse me, you get the occupancy. So it's worth more than 15,000 for the occupied pad versus the vacant pad. But the, my incentive to find used homes is stronger and stronger and stronger right now, but it's not just me, right? It's you, it's everybody. So the, the pressure is definitely cooking on the, the used home market. We've been able to find some and got a couple guys looking for them for me. And one wholesaler sent us several of them. So he's out there finding them, but um I talked to a client this morning that said he was asking about my anti-poaching sign that I referenced in some of the podcast. And he said he's had five or six homes get poached recently. So I was like, put the sign in the front and get this lease provision in there and it's going to help. And it's not bulletproof, but it's, it can save the day because that's where that's what unfortunately what's happening is poaching is on our, on the rise because finding homes out in the country is a problem. We just found a double wide. It's actually near you. It's at uh, your park. It's at this one's in Lawrence, Kansas. It's out in the country. But now I got to find a guy to transport it. First guy took it apart. I got two halves sitting there and I can't get somebody to hook it up and haul it right now because the guy, my installer, one of my guys dropped a home on his foot, um, smashed every bone from the ankle down. And it's his clutch foot, so he can't drive. So he's like, sorry, I can't get these done for you. I was like, I was kind of bang. I had like 12 in the queue for him. And I'm like, uh, crap. So now I own like 12 used homes that are elsewhere 
and I, I'm, I'm scrambling trying to get other drivers. And some of them, I got some other drivers, but they won't cross state lines. I'm taking wow. this from Kansas to Missouri, and I got another guy in Illinois, Missouri. It's just become kind of uh, another challenge, you know, in today's environment. Is there's a lot more guys um, like you who are successful businessmen who have money looking to enter the space than there are the service providers that guys like me and now guys like you need to source homes, tra- transport homes, install homes, manage communities. Yeah. So like there's this, this economics supply and demand are out of whack because there's so many new owners, but there's not so many new install crews. Yeah. And the cost of it has just gone up in the one year that I've been involved now, like a year ago to move a home from you know an hour away from Wichita to like Northern Kansas or outside Kansas city was like, okay, move it and install it like six grand. Right now they're up to like nine grand. It's yeah. gone up like that much in a year. And I think it's because of the, like you're talking about the demand for their services. There's just not enough guys doing it. Yeah. I mean, I, I talked to one mover the other day and he's, I'm, I got a hundred day lead time if it doesn't rain. Yeah. Like, Oh, great. Let me just put me on the list. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So the alternative to the, to the used homes is, is going the new route. So I'm talking with champion builders down in Southern Kansas and, you know, she actually, I was talking to a gal there the other day and she actually was saying that lead times now, like if I order some homes now, I could do an order of say 10 homes, which is about what I'm looking to do. And she might be able to have them in my park by like September, October. I'm like, that's not so bad. I was here in like nine, 12 months, you know? Yes. It depends on which plants you get. And then they, what they've done is they've started stripping some down where they don't have like, Hey, uh, we don't have appliances. We're shipping without appliances. We'll give you a credit. Ah. Okay. Well, okay, great. Well, now I got to go find an appliance. And, yeah. and that's hard, you know? And I've bought a lot from this one true plant and they changed the name, the victory plus to, I think the celebration. And I was like, what's the difference? It says it's the same size. It's like, well, we, we couldn't find, the joists or the eaves or something in this length. So it's like two inches shorter. So it's basically the exact same. It's still a 16 by 76, but it's two inches shorter. We couldn't call it the same thing because it's not the same house, but they're like trying to get materials. I talked to um, uh, Sean at adventure when I was at the MHI conference and he, he said, um, he was on a panel that adventures are smaller than they have one plant. They had, they're like, we're going down to home Depot to pick up OSB because we can't get it from the factory where champion Clayton are big enough. They can get some supplies, but Byron who's ahead of champion made the comment that I don't know how, I don't, I don't remember the number, but something like we, we, we shipped one fourth of the homes that we could have the last year. You know, if we shipped a hundred thousand last year, we could have sold 400,000, but we couldn't get the parts. Mm-hmm. And no wonder they're pushing the price. They, they, you know, they got to make more margin if they're doing 25% of the volume, but then, I can't really absorb 15,000 price increases. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah. what's happening. So it's, it's definitely putting the, putting the pressure on used home market. Yeah. And the, and when I got the pricing from champion, they had like three tiers of pricing they had a base price. Then they had like an inflation price. And then they had like a, what if sort of price, right? They had three columns. And I was like, walk me through this. What am I looking at? Like, well, this is our normal price. This is where we have to be now because of the supply chain and, and, and other issues. And then between the time you place your order and the time that we can deliver it, like five months from now, if there's another price increase, 
we might potentially have to charge you that. And I was like, okay, <laughs> man, oh man. It's like, it just happened to me. I just had six homes roll off April 30th and I ordered them like three months ago and the price increased 1500 three times mm-hmm. in the time since I ordered them. So I got the same homecoming, six of them, but the same exact home come off same day, 4,500 more than what I signed on the invoice. And they're like, pay us or don't, we're not going to do that. So I, okay. Yeah. I guess I just, that's 25 grand I didn't budget. Yeah. And by the way, the price I signed was 10,000 more than when I paid for the home 18 months ago. So I already was uncomfortable with the price I was paying. Yeah. Most of the ones I was looking at were kind of priced somewhere in like that 60 to 70,000 range. I mean, that's, that's expensive, but you know, what what are you going to do? I mean, try to work with uh, like 21st mortgage or some of these other finance finance companies that could, you know, that could really help in this situation. So, so that, you know, we, we're, we're lucky enough to have gotten approved through 21st and and we're going to try to work with them now on this first order. So we'll see how it goes. But again, that's just another part of learning the business, right? Learning the, the different resources that are out there to help a park owner. Um, so, you know, you know, boiling it all down, becoming a mobile home park owner has been uh, a good experience. You know, we have a lot of learning to do, hopefully continue to just grow our portfolio. Like our model isn't like a syndication model. Not We don't raise funds from other people. We just kind of utilize our own capital, my wife and I, from our, from our businesses. And, um, you know, utilizing the, the tax strategy that we already talked about. If we could add one or two good parks a year, you know, that's, that's all we're looking to do. And we don't have to, we don't have any goals in mind where we have to have a thousand lots or a certain number of pads or anything. We we don't have that. We just want to, you know, buy a couple of good assets, hold them for the next 10 years, at least, you know, just kind of, you know, keep the parks in good shape, do regular lot rents, do some infill where we can raise revenue, raise the NOI, obviously in value and possibly refi down the road and, just keep reinvesting in it because I got, like I mentioned earlier, I have three sons all are in college now. And, you know, I'm not saying that any of them would be interested in, in running mobile home parks in the future, but you never know. Right. Yeah. So I just want to kind of have the option out there, leave a little bit of a legacy. Like when they get out, my oldest guy's 21. He's got one more year left. So if he gets out and says, Hey dad, I, I really like what you're doing. Teach me. It'd be very easy for me to kind of hand it off to him and yeah, just let him. Cause you know, as you kind of alluded to at the very open, um, we're leaving Long Island and moving to Charleston, South Carolina. So um, one of the important things that I realized not too long ago, and you and I kind of had a conversation about this in the car the morning we were heading to Topeka, was about, you know, the kind of striking that good balance between work and family, right? Yeah. And, and and honestly, for that that is so important to me anymore, right? I think business is is important, right? We all need to earn a living and provide for our families. But at the end of the day, you know, our most valuable resources are time, right? And the time we spend with our loved ones is so important. And, and I've been kind of burning the candle now for over 30 years. And, and <laughs> there's a point at which you're like, okay, you know, I don't know how much I really want to work anymore. Um, I right. kind of want to work. I, I don't want my brain going soft. I, I like work, but I want to work when I want to work, I want to work two, three, four hours a day and, 
and enjoying my time in, in, in South Carolina. We're moving to a place that's got horses that you were, you were kind of laughing at me earlier about. No, I'm not laughing. I've got a horse. <laughs> I, don't, I don't ride it very often. It's at my parents' house. My parents live on a horse farm. So I've got one there, but I did ride it when I went home for Easter. So did you? yeah. So, yeah, so that's kind of it. You know, we're, we're just trying to add a couple of good assets and work as much as we have to and kind of just see where this all takes us. But there's no, there's no like preset plan. It's just, you know, take them as, take it as it comes. And, um, you know, and hopefully this is, you know, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time working in, in this space. I like the space, honestly. I've yeah. met some great people. Everybody's very friendly, willing to help. Um, I like it a lot, you know, and I, and I think that, uh, if we can just continue down the path we're on right now and, and find a couple of good parks and just add to our por portfolio of, uh, of parks right now, that that's kind of all we're looking to do. And, you know, that's really it. I mean, I don't know what else you want to chat about. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's lots of good stuff. I think this is great. I mean, you wrap it all up there with, yeah, I mean, focus business is important, but focus on family and, and balance your time. I mean, you know, you've been successful in business. You show that you can take those skills and the strategies and merge them into the MHP business. MHP business is a new animal for everybody. There's a, they don't teach you this stuff, right? I mean, I didn't, they didn't cover this when I was going through school and I didn't, you know, it's, it's a on the job, learn, learn as you go and try to bring your past life with you and try to get smarter all the time. And I think you guys are doing a good job at that. And obviously tax strategy is one I'm a big fan of um, overall. And uh, yeah, I think it's good time to be in the business, you know, and there's lots of good years ahead. I hope we'll see. I mean, it's, it's hard to get good parks right now. Right? Prices, it's are, hard. prices yeah. are expensive. Prices are very expensive, but um, like everything, it's cyclical, right? Because we're, or everything is cyclical. So we'll see. I mean, this crazy interest rate environment, it's, it's going to have some sort of impact on the, on the mobile home park market now going forward. We'll have to see how things go. Financing has been challenging. Um, cap rates have compressed so much. Now all of a sudden everyone's used to like, four and five caps. And now with rates in the mid fives, almost, it's like, wow, what do we do now? <laughs> how do we do yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm interested to see how that works. I feel like this happened in retail when COVID hit, I was looking to buy some retail and I was like, sellers had this price in their mind, but then COVID happens. I'm like, well, obviously if I'm buying retail, I should, it's riskier. My bank says it's riskier. Any more down payment, the tennis shaker, I need to pay less. So you need to come down. But the seller's like, no, I was told by a broker it's worth this. Well, there's this gap. And MHP is kind of like that right now where MHP has been so hot. The values are up, but 70% of the capital stack is debt. If it's up 4.5% to 4.95%, that's 10% increase on the 70% of the capital stack. I can't pay as much as I could have six to six months ago. Uh, so it will be interesting. I do think there's enough there's a, I do think there's a window of time here where there's enough dry powder on the sidelines and, or there's enough people who already exited properties at the high value that have 1031 needs that I think the cap rates will stay low in the short run. I think six, 12 months from now, they probably got to go up at some point. Mm -hmm. if interest rates keep going up, but yeah. we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. You had mentioned like, you know, you know, the whole exiting of, of properties, right? So yeah. this year alone, I think we're exiting four of our multifamily earlier investments because 
the tailwinds in the multifamily market, especially in like Dallas and Atlanta and Jacksonville, Florida, where we're exiting our, our properties, all these sponsors are like, now's a great time to get out, right. which is great. I mean, we get our capital back, we get a good return on our money, but like you mentioned, we have bonus depreciation recapture and cap gains, and I'm looking for something to help me offset all that. Right. I mean, you, 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 have, you can afford to overpay quote overpay on the next purchase by 15% because you're about to get hit 25% tax. So, and yeah. then if not you, somebody else. So that's where I think that it's still going to fuel low prices guys that are doing it after, like if I'm looking to buy, buy something with after tax dollars, I don't have the same motivation with you. That's pre-tax and a 1031. You're going to, you're supposed to pay more than me. Well, and if you're doing that and I'm using after tax dollars, I'm going to be missing out on the next couple of deals. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you know, the nature of the beast. Um, yep. You know, nav- a lot of smart people out there navigating same tax code yep. and, and capital placement issues. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So that's kind of where I find myself today, looking at a lot of deals and uh, hopefully we'll get something to pop, but I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. So uh, we'll see. We'll stay positive and I'm trying to add something, like I said, before the end of the year. So uh, that's kind of where we're at. All right, Gerard. Well, this is great stuff. Appreciate you coming on. Appreciate your insights. Uh, nice to connect with you again and get some time to chat. Where can people uh, find you or reach out to you if they want to after the show? Um, if anybody wants to give me a call, my cell is 516-445-2947. Um, we also have a website. So the name of my company is called Spindrift Capital Partners. So you can reach me on my uh, at my website at www.spindriftcapitalpartners or Gerard at spindriftcapitalpartners.com. All right. Happy to so, talk. If anyone has any questions about anything we chatted about, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks, Gerard. Appreciate it. Thanks, for Talk to you soon, bud. All right. Bye now. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.